you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Romans chapter 9. That video was, I mean, you could see at the end there, that's Restoration Church in Germantown, I think is the main neighborhood or area of Philadelphia that they're in. And, and I showed you that because that's a church that um, starting this next or this month that we're going to be financially supporting as um, just a way to where we can be involved in church planting. Um, it's kind of interesting because they're about three years old. They're about the same size as us, although they have like a third of the children that we have. But um, they, um, I just, they're also part of the Acts 29 network there in Philadelphia. And so just we wanted to be active in planting churches. We don't have anyone to send out currently. And so we want to send resources and then hopefully build a partnership to where they can send people to us. We can send people to them and just see a a gospel work happen between two areas that would not otherwise be connected. So that's why I showed you that. That was their video when they were first planting a couple years ago. It's on their website. So I just thought that would be a good introduction to that. Um, The the two main pastors are Watson Jones III. That was the the man speaking. And then the guy with dreadlocks. I I don't know if he has dreadlocks now. Um, That's A.J. Smith. He's one of their co-founders, another pastor there in the video. So um, we'll be getting more information about that to you. But for now, you can begin praying for them as we send resources and see how kind of how that relationship develops. Um, so we're, we're, we're super excited about that, that prospect there. So we wanted you to be aware of kind of what's happening behind the scenes as we want to be a part of uh, planting churches that plant churches that plant churches. And that's why we're part of the X29 network. So Today we begin part four of our series through Paul's letter to Romans. Um, we began, I want to go all the way back, kind of show you where we're going, because there's a progression in each different little sub-series that we've been in within Romans. We've got five total, we're starting four, so we're over halfway. And um, we, we started out looking at the fact that, that we present a problem, that we bring a problem to the equation. That problem's our sin. And, and that's where Paul starts with Romans, that we, we quickly understand that we're in dire need of the gospel, which is the salvation for all people, because we're all sinners. And then we, we switched into not looking at our problem, but looking at God's provision to bring us or save us from our sin. So it was his provision. And then we've been talking the last six or seven, 12 weeks, maybe somewhere in there, about God's power at work in our lives. So not only does he provide a provision to get us out of our sin, but his power works in us to sanctify us, to grow us, to mature us, to set us apart for his good use as he pleases. And today we're we're looking at this idea of of God's preeminence. And and I know that's a word that a lot of times people don't use, but it it fits perfect with where we're going today in Romans 9. And and just looking at the fact that when we see God as preeminent, we're, we're saying that he's superior. He stands above everything else that he's prominent and so that's why the artwork is the big mountain because it's prominent it stands out and that's what god does and what paul highlights through these next few chapters of his letter to the romans and so today and, and if you noticed in that video there was one part where where he said that i'm a person that likes to ask questions right did you catch that which at that point i was like man that's great because i didn't know that until i watched the video but, but that's what we want to do. We want to ask questions. We want to listen to answers. 
And so today, just to, to kind of set your heart in the right spot, I want to ask you, what do you depend on to carry you throughout life? When, when everything goes crazy, which happens at times in life, not saying that you're in that season right now, you might be right in the middle of it, but, but what do you, do you depend on? Where do you turn to when life gets crazy? What does your heart find comfort in? Is it in yourself? Maybe it's in your relationships that, that you depend on those people that are around you because when craziness happens, you just can't do it. And you need those people and you, you depend on other people. Maybe it's your family. We're, we're in, maybe it's some other external organization, not necessarily government, but something else that, that provides you comfort and security. What do you depend on? But then when we think about dependence, we always have to understand and we have to remind ourselves that we all depend on something because we're all at some level, at some point, helpless. Right? We see that, that really there's two ways that we're all helpless. One is physically. Our bodies break down. Sickness happens. Things happen. And so we realize quickly that we have to depend on other people to sustain us, to provide for us, to care for us in those times. Right? That's what Psalms 18.6 talks about crying out. To God in your distress. We're physically helpless. We have to depend on others. But we're also spiritually helpless. So on one side you have a, a physical helplessness. On the other side you have a spiritual aspect. And that's where you get into this total understanding. That, that what we provide is nothing. That's what Isaiah 64 says. right? That our, even our best works are filthy rags. Right, that we're spiritually helpless, that we have to depend on something else. And so as we read these first 18 verses of Romans chapter 9, and it's chock full of a lot of stuff, a lot of controversy, if you don't take time to just look at what Paul's saying, what we really see in that, and what I want you to understand is start thinking about what you depend on. Because in those first 18 verses, Paul shows us, some negative aspects of dependence and a positive aspect of dependence. And that's what we'll be looking at today. But if you will, just follow along. We're going to go ahead and read the Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And in, in Paul starts chapter 9 by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, it is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though... The word of God has failed for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring through Isaac shall your but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring for this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you will, pray with me, and we'll ask the the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, we just, we come to you, and God, and we thank you again just for your truth. God, we thank you that that you've given us your spirit inside us, God, that you've preserved your word for us so that we might know how to live as you've called us. God, and today I just pray that we are submissive to your truth, God, that your spirit would impact our lives, God, by your truth, that you would pierce our hearts to a precision that only you can obtain. And we just thank you and give you glory for your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when you look at that, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy passage if you just look at it all. And it, it kind of continues. Next week we'll pick it up. It doesn't just stop there. He kind of keeps going with the same thing. But we wanted to, to break it here because we see something happening when it comes to our dependence on other people or how we carry through our lives. And so what we find is there's two negative aspects of dependence or depending on the wrong thing, the two negative sides. And that's a, an external reality and a cultural norm. The, the dependence on external realities provide false security and dependence on cultural norms provide no hope. But then ultimately we see that if we can depend on God's sovereign choice, then that alone will sustain us throughout life. And so that's how we want to look at this. And there's, there's a lot of stuff in here, which I want to say, again, I've said this a couple times, but if you're hoping that I will clear everything up, then you've got two high hopes for me. All right. That, that we're going to, we're going to go through this, but this is the, a lot of this stuff is conversations that need to happen that, that we're not afraid of happening, but we're not going to answer all questions. So if you have questions, please ask, get with me. We'll talk even right after. We can talk, we can work through, because there's amazing truth of God in this that displays in our lives. So, let's get started. Dependence on external realities provide false security. And what we see happening there, and I love the way that Paul uses this, because this, to me, this is one of the easiest things for us in a, in a Western, maybe just to say American church to look at, because so much of our lives have been focused in the church world on the external perception of what people see. And that's exactly what Paul uses. Look at, look at what he says, how, how he uses it. He talks about Israel, right? Look at all these external realities that, that he says that the Israelites had, right? In verse 4, to them belong what? Adoption. So they were, they, were, they were chosen by God. They were called by God. The glory, they're set apart for God. The covenants, we can, we can add those in with the promises. So it's a, an expression of God's love for them. The giving of the law, he showed them how to live, set apart from all the other nations. We have to remember that Israel wasn't the only people on the earth. So God gives them the law, shows them how to live as he's called them to. The worship, they, they had the temple, and so now they know how to worship the true and proper God, the true and proper way. And then ultimately, he says, well, he says in ESV, that the, according to the flesh, that is the Christ. 
In, in other versions, it just says the Messiah. And so not only to have these adoption, the glory, the temple, the worship, the law, the promises, the covenants, the Messiah came from them, right? Their flesh and blood was the savior of the world. And so you look at all these external realities, and you see that, that what Paul ends up saying is that those are not enough. Those are, those are not enough. And the, the problem was that so many Israelites failed to see that these external realities were not enough to save them. That it still required faith. And that's what brought Paul to verse 2. What? I have great sorrow and unceasing, and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I'd wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What an amazing statement. And it, and it, and it makes me just, just kind of pull this into a, a quick application. Is that the way you see those who are outside of Christ in our community? Do you have unceasing anguish and sorrow for those who are outside of Christ to the point to where I wish that they could be saved, even if it meant that I wasn't? There's not a perspective that comes from anything but the gospel in that. When's the last time that you wrestled with that? And he's saying that these are my people. These are us. When's the last time you felt that way about those who were cut off from Christ? Because it's that dramatic. It's that real. But what we have to understand, it's not about dependence on external realities. It's about faith. The faith is vital to the life of a Christian. Because what do you see in Hebrews 11, right? Without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. And the reason I think that, that you can tie that into the, the writer of Hebrews saying without faith is impossible to please God. Because I think without faith, we naturally then will rest on the external realities that we see present in our lives. That it's faith then that pushes us further from the external reality to a spiritual aspect that's an internal truth or transformation. Because what we have to see, if you keep going through this, that not only Israel relied on external realities, but we see that those around Israel and those within failed to realize that not all who look like they're saved are saved. Right? Not all who look like they're saved are saved. It doesn't, we, we can't assume that someone, because of an external expression or reality that we see in their life, is actually saved. The way we can look at that here is that don't assume that because someone is sitting here week in and week out with us, that they are saved. Because we have people every week that, that are here with us, fellowshipping with us, and it's great that you are, that are not saved. We can't assume that an external reality displays an internal transformation. And to focus on that and to depend on that gives you a false sense of security. And we, we see that when we look at Abraham's children, right? If you look at verse 8, this means that not all the children of the flesh are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what we see in that is that although... Abraham had more than one son. Only one son was the child of promise. Ishmael and Isaac were both sons. Both had the same father. Yet the promise went through Isaac. Why? Because of God's promise, right? That God focused on Sarah's child because he was the God-ordained chosen heir of the promise. And so we have to understand that, that an external reality being a child 
doesn't necessarily mean that you're a child of the promise. And what Paul's getting at is this external thing, that it's not just because you're an Israelite for them that means you're saved. You have to be a child of the promise, which it brings in the aspect of faith. It's not an external thing. It's just as... It's not just the physical aspect that we have to worry about. It's a spiritual transformation. And that goes for his first initial readers here in Rome just as much as it does now. That we haven't somehow graduated into this point to where we can fix ourselves by doing the right things externally, neglecting the spiritual transformation that happens internally. God focused on Sarah's child because he was the God-ordained, promised heir and therefore, those who were then the people of the promise were those who by faith believed that God would fulfill all of his promises and covenants with the nation of Israel. It wasn't just those people. Ishmael and Isaac were both sons, yet Isaac was the one that continued the promise. And we have to remember that. Because that, that shows us then how we interact within the church now. That we can't just say, come here, do this. And I think that's why we've had a bad problem within the church. Although I feel like there's some pockets that that's happening. And we want to be a, a part of the, the positive aspect of this. But we have so many people. That's why the church is not diverse. Because it says, you know what? If we're focusing on external realities, then we're only going to accept those that look like us. Because then that makes us feel good. Like that somehow we figured it out. But in reality, the church should be diverse because God's people are diverse. Because it's not a physical expression, it's an internal transformation. So you have to ask yourself, what are you depending on? What are you depending on to find your comfort and security as far as you before God? Is it your effort or is it God's faithfulness to complete what he said? Because we have to depend on God for everything, right? We go back to those, those two areas, physically. We can't fix ourselves. We, we can't fix ourselves. Sometimes our bodies break down for no reason, and then everything goes crazy, and we can't do that. All we can do is pray and plead with God that he would intervene, knowing that if he chooses not to, he's still just as loving and sovereign as he was had he completely healed us. That's a reality that we have to see. But we also know that we have to rely on him spiritually because there's nothing that we can do. And when we realize that all of our external expressions or external realities are filthy rags in God's holy, righteous sight, that should humble us. Now, wait a second. Even when I was doing everything right, I was having the best time as far as following what God's called me to, in his holy righteous sight, that was a filthy garment. What an amazing realization to know that if we're not depending on God, then we have this false security that leads us further and further away from the truth. And that's what's scary about having places and having churches that don't talk about the reality of sin, that don't talk about who we actually are because you're focusing then on an external reality. If you'll just perform then you'll be okay. But in fact, that just produces people that might not be saved that are increasingly further and further away from the truth because they think they are because they're explaining their condition or their salvation based on an external reality instead of an internal transformation. And we never want to be a church that, that participates in that. 
So how do you know if you're depending, right? So now let's bring, okay, so how do I know that I'm not focused? Because if we're honest, if we take Paul now and we go back with James, that's, the, the, that's how Paul and James work together. James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Paul says it's not by works. So which one's right? Yes. Okay. Because what happens then, if we don't focus on the external reality to gain our salvation, we realize that there's nothing that I can do. We submit our lives completely to him. And then through his spirit, we see people differently. And so it looks the same, but the dependence is different. So how do you know? What do you turn to and why do you turn to it? If we're taking spiritual aspects, think about your prayer life. Do you pray out of duty or desire to fellowship with God? Do you pray because, man, this is what I'm supposed to do. If I'm a good Christian, I have an active prayer life, but then I don't know how to pray, so I just don't. Right? Is, it, is it just a, an, an aspect of duty? Like, I have to do this, and that's the only reason you're driven to prayer. Or is it a desire to fellowship with God? So it drives you to prayer, even though you don't know how. But you continue to, to push forward. You continue to pray that he would teach you how to pray. Because of a desire to fellowship with him instead of a, a duty to just have this external reality. I think that's what Jesus was getting out when he called out the Pharisees for praying on the street corner for everyone to see. That was out of duty, obligation, look at me. Instead of a desire that finds yourself tucked into a closet, overcome with emotion because you need him. Why do you go to your Bible? Is it to, to prove that your friend on Facebook that said something's actually not biblically correct? I mean, because that's easy to do, right? Or is it not because of a desire to defend yourself? Or is it just a, out of devotion? Because this is God's truth that he's given us. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to study. I'm going to spend time because I want to seek the Lord and be devoted to him. And this is where I find him. It can't be out of a defense of yourself and say, man, these people are not right. Look at this one verse. And most of the time that people that do that, that one verse is not in the right context. And it just kind of disproves them. If anyone has any sort of thinking about it, we shouldn't go to our Bible out of defense first. It should be out of devotion to the truth. Because the difference, again, there is the dependence. If we go out of devotion to know and seek the Lord, then that's total dependence on him, not the external reality of I'll wake up and I have a quiet time, even though you really don't study the word. You just act like you do and you post a picture. Why do you serve people? Is it an, a validation of who you are? Or is it an overflow of what's been done for you in the gospel? Because you can serve, we can go do all sorts of things. As a church here, there's plenty of people around here that have needs. And if we just wanted to look good and depend on external realities, and we go into every little pocket and we do a little bit, and we say, look at what's going on. Look at all of these amazing things. But what a lot of times that looks like Amazing service is actually validation because we're depending on an external reality instead of an internal transformation because the internal transformation creates the exact same thing but an overflow of a gospel awareness in your life. 
So not what, why do you turn to these things, but also where does your, what does your heart long for? Think about it. What, is your, what does your heart long for? Do you long for a deeper, more familiar, a loving relationship with the Lord? To know the gospel and consider its implications in every single aspect of your life? Or do you long just to know whatever's happening in your neighbor's life so that you can show how you're a little bit better? My life's a little more put together, so it gives me a little more comfort. We should long for a deeper awareness of the gospel. Because then that points us to the fact that we cannot focus or depend on external realities to justify anything that we have. Because the external reality, when it's placed next to God, will never match up. It won't happen. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. is That that I have this sorrow because so many people, my people, have fallen for the fact that they have these great external realities, yet some of them, many of them, are not saved. And so they're dying, and if we're true to Scripture, going to hell because they thought they were okay externally when there was no internal transformation. They were depending on the wrong source. And that's what we need to see. And this is a warning for us as a church now, even as a young church, so we don't set a culture that drives us out of that, that we cannot depend on external realities to justify who we are before the Lord. It's only an internal transformation or a complete, total submission to Him. Because that's what we're called to do, right? We're called to submit and be saved. That's what, that's what the Christian life is. It's a life of submission because he is greater. But we also see then that if we aren't going to focus on external norm, norms or realities for us, that, that then we turn to cultural as a whole, right? That if it's not, okay, it's not just me. Well, look at this culture. And this is what we see happening that Paul talks about next, that, that dependence on a cultural norm leads to no hope. It leads to not being able to cope with life because then you can't explain it when it doesn't go by that. And this is what happens, right? A a lot of people, you might have heard it this way, that that this is the way that it's always been, so we're just going to keep doing that, right? That's that's the church world. That's the, from my own experience, that was the Baptist church world that I grew up in. I can say that because I grew up Baptist, so I can pick on them because I am one. But that's what it was, right? How many, how many churches split over carpet because it's always been there? Right? I mean, that's the truth. That's the reality that what happens. But all that is, 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 is depending on a cultural normalcy that's always been there instead of depending on what God has done within our lives that catapults us into the community on mission. That's what I love how Paul talks about this. And, and a lot of people, when they see this, they get stuck on Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And they don't even realize that that's not Paul's words. Those are Moses' words. But look at this. He's talking about the fact that this is a cultural norm that God worked beyond. Right? Pick it up in verse 10. Not only that, so that also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
And what we see in this aspect, when we look at this, first we need to, let's look at what's happening in this text. First, we have another promise based on children or offspring. Right? This, is, this is talking something else. This is a continuation of the original promise given to Abraham. Because remember, he was going to be a father of all people, the father of many, like the stars would be his descendants. And so now we have the next generation happening. Right? It was Isaac's wife, so the child of the promise, his wife. And so their children then would be the children of the promise to keep that going. And what we need to see, just to stop right now real quick, is, is we, there's an aspect of this I want to talk about because I think that we neglect the generation coming in preparing them to be used by God. I think that so often we fail as a church and, and as parents to prepare our children to be used by God because we just sit back and just kind of let them learn. And so if you're not continually teaching and instructing your children to follow. Not because you can save them by doing that. Because that's going back to an external reality. But because that's what we're called to do. If you're not doing that, then you need to repent of that. And you need to start. And you don't have to be a theologian. You have to be a parent. To love your child enough to do that. So children, youth in here that aren't paying attention. When your parents instruct you and point you to the Lord... It's because they love you. So quit pushing back and actually realize that God placed them in your life for a purpose. And if they're going to be faithful to what he's called them to, they're going to instruct you. But parents, remember that your children are watching. And so what are you teaching them is more important. Because so many people, church is the last thing that they're devoted to. But it's the first thing that they run to. Does that make sense? That everything else that culture says you need to be doing, all the athletics and the sports, the extracurricular, everything else. It's not just sports. It's anything else that you add in. What are you teaching your child's more important than devotion to Christ? That's just a little side note, but I think that's important. So, another promise. But there's a problem with the promise. And I know it sounds weird. When we look at this, there's a problem because there's not one child. Right? This would have been easy had she not been pregnant with twins, right? Because there's one child, but now there's, there's twins, so it makes it a little different because they're essentially born at the same time. If you go back, Genesis 25, if I remember right, it's when this story starts. Go read this because it's crazy, right? They fought in the womb. Esau's born first. Jacob's holding his heel, right? They're just, and that's not just because they're brothers, right? But what happens, there's a problem because there's twins. So culturally, who's the child of the promise? It's Esau. He's the firstborn. He's the one that gets the inheritance. Okay? And so if we're thinking cultural and we're going to depend on cultural norms, then it's Esau that's the child of the promise. But that's not what happens, is it? No. Why? Because God works beyond cultural standards. He's, he's not bound by culture because he's outside of that. So what happens? The older shall serve the younger. Completely opposite of what should have happened culturally. So Genesis 25, 23. The older shall, 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 shall serve the younger. And that's a massive shift. That's a massive shift in this culture. And then we get to even crazier when it says, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it. And the way for I, I want you to think about that, because we put hate 
And I think we, we miss part of what's happening in this text when we just say, oh, well, how can God say he hated Esau? Right? Because that's, and maybe that's where you're at. But here's what I want you to think about when you see this. When you see Jacob, I love, Esau, I hate it. I want you to think, Jacob, I'm going to choose to bless, and Esau, I'm going to choose to withhold my blessing from. That's a better understanding of what's happening here because that's the switch that happens. It's Jacob receives the blessing even though he doesn't deserve it because if you read the story, Jacob's not the one that any of you would pick. He's the liar. He's the deceiver. And it just proves that God works beyond culture because he shouldn't even have it anyways. And so now if God's going to work outside of culture, but why is he going to pick the crazy one, right? Why would he do that? Because he's not depending on cultural norms to accomplish his plan. And the timing is everything, right? Before they were born, before they had done anything. What this is called is unconditional election. It's unconditional election is what you see. And it's at the end of verse, um, kind of midway verse 11. It says, in order that what? God's purpose of election. It's unconditional because it was before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad. Another way to look at that is unconditional choosing. It wasn't based on what they were doing, obviously, because if God would choose Jacob based on what he's done and would do over what Esau's done, then he's really not that good of a God to follow. Because we wouldn't have chosen him. I mean, it's crazy. He steals his birthright and his blessing. And he still, I think the, the blessing's not as crazy as the birthright. Just to kind of point this out, it just, to me, it makes it better. How, if, you, if you don't know the story, Jacob stole Esau's birthright because he wouldn't feed him when he was starving, right? He was cooking. Esau comes in because he's out in the wilderness killing things and all that, and he's starving. And to the point where he says that he's going to die, and Jacob says, well, I'll give you some if you give me your birthright, right? That's the person that you want to choose, right? No. But culturally, he shouldn't have been chosen. So why did God choose him? Because it's God's unconditional choosing and sovereign choice that he did. He's not bound by cultural norms and neither should we. And that's why it's so dangerous when we get into this idea of cultural Christianity. Because it depends on cultural norms. And if we're depending on what culture says we should be, as soon as culture shifts, we either lose our identity or we compromise the gospel. If you're honest about looking at the state of the church in the U.S., it's exactly what's happening. You see the gospel being compromised because culture says it's different. We have to quit depending on culture to tell us what's happening. In fact, you need to realize that you're not a Christian because you're identified culturally as one. You're a Christian because God chose you to be one. If you depend on cultural markers... When they change, your identity is going to be shaken and you're going to begin to compromise the gospel because you're depending on culture, not an internal transformation that happens by God. But if you depend on God's providence, when culture shifts, you can stand firm because your identity and then you realize the gospel is rooted on a foundation that's steadfast despite culture. That remains unshakable because God doesn't operate by cultural norms and neither should we. It doesn't mean that you don't love people. It means that your identity is not bound by cultural normalcy so you then can live the life that God's called you to. 
So what gives you your identity? How do you know if you're relating on culture to feel good? And, it, and honestly, this is getting easier. Because it's a lot easier to tell now. 20 years ago, 30 or 50 years ago, it was a lot harder to tell who was culturally depending on them, that for their identity and who wasn't. Now it's pretty easy. Do you submit to the gospel? Yeah? Well, then you're going to be different because our culture is different. We've passed that point. So in, in, a, in a, some odd way, it's actually positive that we live now because we, we're not as easily deceived by culture if we're staying true to God's word. It's, it's clear, the difference. So what do you, where do you get your identity? Where do you gain confirmation from? Or another way to ask yourself this question, do you, do you rationalize because culture says that you should be thinking something different than what God calls you to. So in your considering what you should do in your life, what you should stand on, what's the supreme? Is it culture or is it God? Because if we ever depend on culture, then we have no hope because it just keeps eroding from underneath us and we keep falling further and further from the truth. And if we stop there, then that's kind of dismal, right? It's, oh, gosh, it's depressing. But Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look at the last, last few verses. Verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16, that's the key to everything, if you want to highlight. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And that's the comforting part, right? Then you look at this and you think, but wait a second. So we have to ask ourselves two questions as we get into this, as we wrap up. First, is God sovereign? Is God the sovereign in everything, which is sovereign, right? And then you have to ask yourself, is God fair, or is it God fair that God chooses some to save and some not to? And just so you know, the way you answer question two is the way you answer question one. And so let's look at this, because I know this is kind of crazy, which, by the way, these are, this is where we're getting into the point where we need to have conversations if you're wrestling. So, but let's look at this. What does Paul say? There's some things, I guess, three things that we need to consider about these last few verses to get us to where we can understand that depending on God's sovereign choice is what sustains us. So first, that God can be just and not save everyone. Okay, that's what we have to understand. We have to see. Or that God doesn't need to treat all sinners the same in order to be just. Right? And here's where our understanding of equality messes with our theology because we think that if we're going to be equal everyone should get the exact same thing it's what culture preaches at us right that if you disagree with someone then there's no way that you can love that person but what we have to understand here and an easy way to see this is if if you were walking along the street and you see two homeless people or anyone beggars Anything, needy people, however you want to vision those people, think of that. And you give one of them, you only have a dollar. So you give the dollar to one and not the other. Is that injustice? Because you only picked one. They both are the same need. 
You only had one dollar. You can't tear it in half. It doesn't turn into 50 cents if you tear it in half. Right? Isn't it more injustice to not help either than to just help one? And that's what we have to understand here is that we don't have to treat all people the same. Or God doesn't have to treat all sinners the same to be just. In fact, the fact that he helps some is an amazing display of his grace and mercy. Because if we look at the fact that, that we're all sinner by our own efforts, go back to Romans 5, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. If we're in Adam because of our sin, then before a God that's holy, then everyone deserves to die. So he can be just and not treat all sinners the same. Because we would, right? Wouldn't you help one of the people if you approached them? If we're honest, we would, right? And a lot of times I've found that, that when you find something here in the word that's hard to understand, if you'll personalize, if you'll make it a reality, and you see it and you put real people in there, then you understand what's happening. So if you only help one, would you say that you're not just? No, because I helped that one. So why do we then translate to the God? How dare he not help everyone, even though he's helped some? Right? He can be just and not treat everyone the same. That's what we have to understand first. Second, the objection that always happens here is how can God harden Pharaoh's heart? Right? Is that not him making him bad? One, no, because we're all sinners. Passed down, inherited. But what we need to understand, if you go back and read the Exodus story, which go back, it's pretty eventful, pretty exciting. Right? That, that God chose you to use Pharaoh to make his name known. But what we need to understand is that, that Pharaoh rejected God's power time and time again. Why? Because he thought that he was God. Right? Pharaoh was God. And so what happened then is he continually rejects. So every plague that happened as God's displaying, bringing his people out in God's overall sovereign plan, every plague that happened should have been a wake up to Pharaoh to say, wait a second, I'm not God because look at this. Right? So Pharaoh continually rejected God many times before God actually punished him by leaving him. You can see that. And if we just look at the story, we understand that when we find this stuff, that man, how can he have any hardened Pharaoh? Pharaoh rejected him many times. And so do so many people today. It's, it's really, if we look at Romans 9 here, we need to go back to Romans 1. Right, because what's he say? He says he gives them over to their desires. That's what Paul, how Paul describes. When we're talking about our problem, our sin, it says that God gives them over to their desires. What does he mean by that? It means that he lets their sin completely dominate them and chooses not to bring them out of that. But it's not putting sin on them. It's leaving the reality of the sin present where it already existed. And in that, you can find hope, if you're honest. You can find security. And then the third thing we need to look at is verse 16 again. So then it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What an amazing thing to understand that salvation that we talk about so much that everyone desperately needs when they're in their sin doesn't depend on human will or effort. That brings me comfort because I screw it up all the time. That brings me comfort as a preacher because I know that I don't have to preach a perfect sermon for God to work in people's lives. And that should give you hope that you don't have to preach 
or speak a perfect gospel presentation for people to say because it doesn't depend on your will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy on some. And what happens, I think, when we look at this, and this might be you, that if you have a problem with this and you're like, I don't understand how God can choose some and not others, then, then a lot of times the people that I've talked to at this that have a problem with unconditional election, they have a problem not that God chose some, it's because that they didn't get to be the one that chose. If we're honest about it, that most of the time people have a problem because they're not the ones that got to choose, God is. But that's depending not on God's sovereign choice, that's depending on human will, which Paul says, frankly, is non-existent. So salvation depends on a mercy of a holy, righteous God before sinners. What an amazing thing. The fact that salvation is possible because our existence now didn't have to happen. It could have stopped Genesis 3. Right? It doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on man. Now, is that saying that you have to completely agree with this to be here and and worship with us? No, because there's some little things that we can talk about. But what it does mean is, one, that that you're going to have a hard time if you flat out disagree with that because I think it's scriptural. And so what I would say is that if you don't at this point, then come tell me. We'll talk. We'll seek scripture together. Because I'm confident that if we're open about scripture and we look at scripture, that's what's going to come off the pages. And it gives us hope. And so if that's if that's you, do you you have to completely 100 percent right now be that? No. But let's seek scripture and let scripture determine what we believe and what we stand on. Because I think when we do, we're going to find that we have to depend on God's sovereign choice to give us any hope or any sustaining passion in our lives. So, as we end, if you're not a Christian and you hear this, it's a little scary, right? What if God didn't choose me? Well, I don't know who God chose. So what I do is I pray. I pray that God would come into your life, that you would stop resisting his power, that you would submit your life. And so we want you to know that, that it, God's salvation is based on his mercy alone. That there's nothing that you're going to hear us tell you to do to make yourself worthy of salvation because there's nothing that you can do. And so if you're sitting there and you're not a believer and you're freaking out, know that it's his mercy alone. You don't have to change to be accepted. You have to hear the gospel that you're dead in your trespass and sin, yet because of Jesus Christ, You're made alive. And then all that you need to understand at that point is it takes total submission to his will in your life. An awareness that you're a sinner and a realization that there is salvation possible. And that's what we pray that you would see. It's what we want to communicate in relationships. And if you haven't gotten that from a relationship, then let me know because that's just not the gospel. For everyone else, including non-Christians. What we need to understand is that in a world, that if we live in, and we do, if we live in a world where people depend on the effort of man, then you're going to live in a world where the strong will always abuse the weak. Where the majority will always oppress the minority. That if we're depending on man, then the rich are always going to exploit the poor. And the healthy are always going to cast out the sick. 
That's just what happens when we depend on ourselves. We see differences and we use the differences to our advantage. And if you're not strong, healthy, rich, or in the majority, then you don't get anything in a world dominated by man's effort. But that's not the world that we live in when we understand that it's only through the gospel that in Christ we see a world where the strong rescue the weak. Right? That that only through the gospel will the strong not abuse the weak. They rescue the weak. Or the majority elevates the minority. It doesn't happen except for gospel awareness. That the rich restore the poor. That they use their wealth to restore those in poverty to elevate them out of that. It only happens with a gospel awareness depending on God's sovereign choice to sustain us. And only in that world will the healthy care for the sick. Only through a gospel awareness did you have Christians stand in cities decimated by the plague and care for people. Only in a culture that was surrounded by a gospel awareness do you realize that every hospital that we have has some sort of Christian or religious affiliation with it. Why? Because the gospel says care for those who can't care for themselves. And so what has to happen, and this will only happen with people, when we as the church and individuals completely depend on God's sovereign, unconditional choice to save some. And then what do we do? We use that to propel us out to those because we know the reality that people are dying in their sin and salvation is possible. And so we care for those who can't care for themselves. We fight for justice for those who can't fight for themselves. We elevate the minority and we welcome them in because every individual bears the image of our creator. And that we use our resources to restore and elevate those in poverty and bring them out of that because we were brought out of our sin. Not because we did anything, but because God's unconditional, merciful choice to save some sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Yeah, we thank you that we find hope and not in ourselves. God, we thank you that that we don't have to look to an external reality, that we don't have to perform to gain your love. God, we just pray that that today, that if there are those here who have not submitted their lives, God, I just pray that they would hear the gospel and understand that there is nothing that they can do to fix themselves apart from surrendering to your son, Jesus Christ. God, I just pray that we would see the reality of a gospel life that seeks to help those who cannot help themselves because you pulled us out of our death when we were incapable. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.